Have you ever thought about volunteering here at Cambridge 105 Radio? I'm Lucy Malazzo, and five years ago, I did just that. I wanted to learn about radio and kind of thought I could help out behind the scenes. Since then, I've read the news, have woken up to a very early alarm for Cambridge breakfast and recorded promos like this one. Right now, Cambridge 105 Radio is looking for new volunteers to join the team. And if you fancy getting involved, visit cambridge105.co.uk slash volunteer. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, you're tuned in to Cambridge 105 Radio and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, your fortnightly review of films big and small, in cinemas and on streaming with our wonderful team of critics. So get comfy in your seats, or if you're still in bed, we won't judge, and get the skinny on what is and maybe isn't worth catching this week. I'm Lorcan O'Neill, and we'll be mixing it up a little today with a more conversational tone, as I'm joined with uh, Ashley Whitaker. Hello. And Henry Jordan. Hello. As always, we have an eclectic mix of films uh, to suit all tastes today. First on the table is horror maestro Jordan Peele's mysterious new terror, Nope. We then shift gears and examine how a life is best lived when a young woman is faced with greatly diverging possibilities and look both ways. That devilish delinquent is back after a walloping 13 years, but going back 15 years to see the beginnings of a monster in prequel Orphan First Kill. The singing seamen return in the sequel to the largely successful biopic of the largely successful band and Fisherman's Friends One and All. We dig into the very first completely Welsh-language horror feature, Gwiled, or The Feast, uh, and we cap it all off with Netflix's action horror, Day Shift, starring Jamie Foxx and Dave Franco. What could go wrong? So let's start by looking to the skies and hoping whatever's up there comes in peace. What if I told you that today you'll leave here different? Fox. I'm talking to you. Bro, what'd you see? Something above the clouds. That's big. How big? Big. You think whatever killed Pops is out there? Right here, you are going to witness an absolute spectacle. So what happens next? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Oscar-winning director Jordan Peele delivers his third slice of horror Americana after the highly acclaimed Get Out and Us terrified and entertained audiences across the world. This time we see the trials and tribulations of esteemed horse trainers OJ and his sister Emerald, played by Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer, after a mysterious presence starts abducting their livelihood and terrorizes the local population. But all is not as it seems. Henry, Peel said he wanted to make a movie uh, that would help save cinemas uh, after the pandemic because he had a feeling they would probably need that. Um, and the best way to do that would be a big spectacle film. Was it spectacular enough? Oh, for me, it, it absolutely was. Um, this is one of those films that I... It had been delayed a bit here in the UK. It's been out in America for a couple of weeks and I've been desperately avoiding spoilers because I knew it was one that I had to just experience as a film itself. And so, yep, opening night, there I was, biggest screen I could find, and I was so happy that I made that decision. It is a film that is is not just spectacle itself, but is very interested in interrogating the idea of spectacle. I'm sure we're kind of going to get into this, but Jordan Peele is a director who loves to kind of approach themes through his films, and I think that's kind of the overriding one for Nope. He's interested in kind of how we as an audience respond to spectacle, how spectacle responds to us, and the way that we can kind of 
try and coexist with spectacle in a perhaps peaceful way uh for me it just it just worked <laughs> it's kind of tough to break it down more than that it just worked it had so many of those like giddy lean forward moments as you can both attest because you were sitting behind me and probably with you Sorry. know laughing at me just leaning forward whenever i got a little too excited it just captured me and made me excited Every, just hearing that trailer again i was like i've got to i've got to go see this again it just works Okay, Ash, before we went to see this film, you said you were just hoping it wasn't going to be signs. Having seen the film, I think you may have been on the on the money for a number of reasons. Why did you say that, and is that what you took away from the film after watching it? Well, because everyone else hates signs. I kind of liked signs, but my taste is slightly different to people with good taste. Um, I think signs was a little bit... Her. I was expecting to come into this. Um, this is the third of Jordan Peele's horrors. And I was terrified, especially by Us, which was his second. Get Out, the premise is vile and terrifying. So I was G'd up, ready to be scared brainless by this. And there was an there really wasn't one moment where I was truly terrified. There was a little jump scare that got me in the first third, maybe. But, I, yeah, I was expecting a Jordan Peele horror with some alien action, and it was a little bit pedestrian. Well, Henry kind of touched on this a little bit. That there, I agree that the thing I like about Jordan Peele a lot is that he's one of those filmmakers who goes hard on the theme uh, as a source of structure and to make the audience think as it goes, um, whereas I feel like usually theme is just an afterthought by a lot of bigger movies. But is do you think a... Having a crowd-pleasing blockbuster that's also a cerebral metaphor on various levels is a contradiction in terms, maybe? I think maybe a little bit, but it's one of those cases where I don't actually care. We'll get into this later a little bit, where sometimes if you're just not grabbed by a film, you start to interrogate it a bit more and go, well, hang on, why is that there? Well, that doesn't work, actually. But when a film can just grab you on a very visceral and very primal level... It doesn't matter so much. And I think that is what Nope does. It is kind of... It is interrogating spectacle while still being committed to spectacle. And I guess you're right that on the surface that shouldn't work. And it's interesting that I think as far as you two are concerned, it maybe doesn't work so much. But I felt that it was a leap that I was completely willing to take with Peel the whole way. Um, whenever the film started, uh, I... You, you meet the main characters, O.J., who's uh, a very shy, reserved, not really in his element character. Uh, so you know almost nothing about him, and then you know everything about his sister, Emerald. Her whole backstory is pretty much explained. And I was very much looking forward to seeing where Daniel Kaluuya's character went. And then there's a very deliberate shift to the sister character as the film goes. And I, I kind of felt like Daniel Kaluuya was just left with his hat in his hands and not much meat in the character. Ash, did you, how did you find that kind of shift in focus? Well, I think I think about Daniel, what Henry thinks about the film. So I was just there and ready with Daniel. He can do what he likes and I'm going to think he's great. Mm. I liked that I was seeing him with a little less swagger, a little less bravado than usual. He does sweet, downtrodden, grieving, quiet and nervous very, very well. And the right thing to do here would be to have Kiki Palmer come in and overpower the film, because that's what her character would do in real life. And so she does, and so he lets her. So that made perfect sense for me. And I did very enjoy it. seems a little on the nose, because sadly it still is when you see women in these roles in these kinds of films. Like, oh, look, the girl's having a go, and she's turned out to be the saviour here. 
I appreciated the effort, though, and I thought Daniel Kaluuya did a really lovely job, very quietly. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll kind of get into the meat of the film. So, uh, it's, like I said, there's, um, there's this malevolent force that's kind of haunting the, um, the horse training yard and the neighboring uh, amusement park run by uh, Stephen Ewan. Um, I, I found not just the switch between uh, Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer a little off-putting, but the fact that you spend the first hour and a half of the film as uh, a fairly effective atmospheric horror comedy and then the last 20 30 minutes it's it's all action so you have the malevolent force uh represents different elements at different points of the film uh it goes from being representing cruelty or it could be biblical or uh our need for spectacle or this this force's need for spectacle so whenever the end the climax happens i was left confused as to ultimately what it was supposed to represent if it means different things at different points. Did anyone come away from the ending like completely satisfied with what the resolution was? No, but also that's never been the case with a Jordan Peele film for me. And if, I think, again, that's why this film works. I've had so many conversations about this film over the past week, and a lot of people I've talked about it with haven't enjoyed it. But we all keep talking about it, and that because Peele leaves so many questions hanging in the air, we all keep saying, but what was that? Why was that there? I've had, like hour-long conversations about the placement of a shoe in this film. And I think that's, you know, for me, again, that's why it works. I think some people are annoyed that they're like, but that wasn't answered. Why Why didn't we know about that? Why is there this subplot about a monkey going on? But again, for me, I think that that mystery and that inherent kind of thing in here that makes you keep on thinking about the film is is what sets it alight for me. Yeah, I think I get the same with Peel's first two horrors as well. It was less obvious to me in this one, but now we're talking about it, it does fit his theme, which is who's the real monster here or what is the real monster here? And you switch throughout in, in Get Out and in Nope and then at the end it takes you a real while because he never ends them quite right. It never feels quite right. And then you figure it out a bit later. But yeah, who's the real monster here? That's with the monkey subplot and the need for spectacle and the kind of monstery horror we get to see a little bit closer up, albeit very briefly, and it's very weird, that bit. Um, but, yeah, it's... Everyone gets looked at and questioned and uh, blamed a little bit. Part part of part of why I thought you kind of hit the nail on the head with signs, uh, obviously it's a, a genre filmmaker who's in the, his third kind of breakthrough film uh, and he tackles UFOs. Um, but one of my problems with signs is that the not just the photography, but the dialogue is very overindulgent. And I found, nope, the dialogue wasn't very subtle. People are very much talking about what's going on on a very surface level. Um, there's even a bit where there's an elongated, like I assume is a dig at Saturday Night Live, whenever Jordan Peele would have been on Matt TV, which is like the rival sketch show at the time. Um, did anyone else find it a little self-indulgent or did people find it genuinely funny? He's, they're poking fun, and I think it's very obvious that they're poking fun. Maybe it's because we know what Jordan Peele's humour's like, though. I'm not sure if that would have jarred for anyone coming at this without knowing him in that way. I found it a less indulgent than Signs, which took itself very, very seriously. Um, which, was it M. Night Shyamalan's film, Signs? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which he does tend to do quite a bit, bless him. I'm a fan. Um, this was funny and supposed to be 
which is why maybe some elements didn't work in the genre. And I think people coming into this hoping for something like Signs will be annoyed by those elements. But people coming in here hoping for a Jordan Peele good time will get that. I think there's a bit of a... Um, this happens sometimes, especially with people like in that Shyamalan, people like genre filmmakers who make it their trademark to have a twist towards the end. Or on top of that, everyone... Every, Jordan Peele's a very public figure. He's, he's like, everyone's seen the sketches and all, all of his, like, hi history on TV. Um, I feel like he's got a bit of a cult of personality. People feel like he can do no wrong. Um, and then combine that with the fact that it's a filmmaker who's expected to maintain his brand, which is his name, as well as come up with hit after hit that has a twist is a lot of pressure. Would, would we rather Peele... I, I think after this film, I'd rather take... Jordan Peele take a little bit of a break and really focus on something he's really passionate about and like just nailing that script um, do we think would you guys like to see just kind of more him kind of hitting the home runs or do you think would it be like a bit of a break for now I, weirdly I do feel like I agree with you even that we're coming at different perspectives on this film this is Peele's biggest film yet and you know it's done alright at the box office so far but I think the kind of slightly lukewarm reception is going to give him time to kind of go away and reconsider and maybe go back to a kind of a smaller canvas like that was what made get out so good was that it was such a kind of a small specific and very personal story and that's why it resonated with so many people and i think not that i don't want another nope but i think i want i, I want people to do something different again so i don't want him to do another big spectacle and this time it's about the ocean or whatever i want him to to go okay right something new, what's that going to be? And take as long as it takes for that to come to fruition. It is odd that a comedian, such a famous comedian, is making their name as a director on these horror films as well. That's kind of jarring in and of itself. I think he obviously wants to push himself and try something else. So you're not going to be as good a horror writer and director as you are a comedian if that's what made you famous. I also just get the vibe. He's done three. It's his trilogy of horrors. I think he's going to take a break and try something else and come back with a family drama or maybe a comedy would be a great idea. <laughs> mm, I don't know. I've seen Keanu. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, spectacle filmmakers, you think of like Spielberg and uh, George Lucas and Chris Nolan, they always, um, even Michael Bay, um, they have a strong emphasis on like sound design and music. Uh, they, they, they try to immerse you as much in the sound as well. Um, as a cinema experience, I, I thought the sound design, the music was a little lackluster and not particularly memorable. As a as a overall cinema experience, how did you guys find it? Visually, spectacle worked for me. It's I'm not great on quality of sound and understanding where that falls down in a film, but it felt big and loud and vast and expansive. But that's because it's in the Californian outback, whatever you guys call it out there. Um, <laughs> so big scrubland deserts all these wild horses it felt grandiose and epic to me so that worked very well for me cool. henry any last words uh i just i i like it when filmmakers take these these big hits they get the kind of get told all right you can do what you want because even you know even when it doesn't succeed it doesn't succeed in interesting ways but i think nope does succeed and it is you know, ultimately, it's very up my street, which I think is why I'm drawn from it. Like, there is a bit where OJ has a Bronco chase. This is a film that's kind of very specifically playing into my interests. So I was probably always going to enjoy it, but I'm really delighted that I get to enjoy it this much anyway. 
Cool. Uh, no shortage of talking points with this one. Uh, despite the varying opinions in the studio, I think we're, we all agree wholeheartedly that uh, you should check it out on the big screen and uh, come away with your own interpretation. Um, it's a gorgeous-looking film drenched in atmosphere. Uh, nope is a certificate 15, and it's showing at all three Cambridge cinemas. Next up, a college student takes a test she hopes to fail. Have you ever wondered what if... What if I'd moved to that city, gone to another school, or considered hooking up with that one friend? What could possibly change? Can a single moment change your life? Just to rule it out. Well, this is my moment. Oh, God. <gasps> We're good. We're not pregnant! <gasps> I don't know what to do. Let's see where this leads me. I'm pregnant. Him? I didn't even know that you guys were... We're not. Oh, great. I know we're, we're friends mostly. It was a night, really, just in those that Good half a night. Lord. Oh. You're an actress? Are you? Yes. <laughs> I applied for a job. Lucy Galloway. She's like my idol. Natalie. You work here. It's a nice blazer. Don't worry, you're not a real estate agent. Sliding Doors, by way of teen mom, Look Both Ways, stars Lily Reinhardt as Natalie, a young woman who, after a night of passion with a close friend, finds she might be pregnant. She takes a test to find out, and from here, we see her life unfold simultaneously, as if she tests both negative and positive. Ash, uh, two separate plots around the same character. You really have to be invested in this character. How did you find Natalie? She's good. (laughs) I think... It's, so it's Lily Reinhardt. Is she super famous for Riverdale? Um, Riverdale right, yeah. yeah. So that that would be. I'm a demographic and maybe two above. So <laughs> I don't um, I don't worship at the church of this era of stars. She does carry it well, though. There's other things that she's trying to work around, but she did her best. Um. Henry, the the two parallel plots um, were supposed to distinguish the difference between uh, between them because Natalie has a different haircut between each. So immediately, every man Duh. watching this men every man watching this film is going to be horribly confused throughout mm-hmm. the entire thing, as I was. Uh, were you able to stick with the dueling narratives? Uh, n- no, I was not. I it wasn't that I I couldn't follow it because it's not a very difficult path. It's just that. I, 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 this feels like I may be skating close to spoilers, although if you're really worried about the plot outcome of Look Both Ways, you may have you know, other priorities. But the problem is that it doesn't really matter which path she's on. This is the story of some kind of you know, attractive-looking, seemingly wealthy white woman who is doing pretty well in life beforehand, and over the course of the narrative, some sad things happen to her in both realities, and then it all just kind of ends up fine for her anyway, whatever happens. It is a very... Splitting the story into two halves seems a thing that's only done to hide the fact that neither story has enough meat to sustain itself for an entire runtime. I don't really see any reason for this film existing at all, really, apart from the fact that Lily Reinhardt wants to do something now that Riverdale's coming to an end. And good luck to her, because she needs better than this. And she's staying firmly. I think Riverdale's a Netflix property, isn't it? It's CW, but Netflix uh, they, distributes it. They distribute it, it I see. Um, like, like I said, it's, it's a Netflix film, so it's safe to say it's not going to be overly cinematic. Um, <laughs> I was a little bowled over by just quite how cheap this looked. Um, Ash, does that even matter at this point? Is this just like a nice movie to watch? Uh, did you get much out of it? See, 
the grown-up in the room, as I've appointed myself, <laughs> is now going to say it's cool and it's funny because we find it silly and trashy. The people who are going to be watching this and loving it are girls a good 10 years younger than me who are way more impressionable and this is an irresponsible story <laughs> to tell them. You are not going to get pregnant at 19 in college and have your life turn out pretty much exactly the same as if you didn't get pregnant at 19 in college. And spoiler alert, that's pretty much how it ends. You are not going to have the same successful kind of career. You're not going to have the same brilliant relationships with all your friends and your parents. It's not going to work out like that for you. So please don't think that this is true in any way. The artistic license is wild and super irresponsible, I thought. But it's, I mean, you, you could call the film posit a positive affirmation, the movie. Do you, do you think that's still... This wouldn't get made in England because we have <laughs> kind of sexual health, reproductive rights. Mm. We, we know that we can get out of things if we want to. It's very um, anti-abortion, I thought. Mm. That was definitely the underriding Oh, no, I couldn't message. even get, get that because it's set, you know, in Texas, but it's very clearly stated that it's a, it's a decision. And she says, no, 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 I want to keep it. So the film's not even fun enough to be bashing it as like an irresponsible, you know, anti-abortion drama. It's just something that is so spineless that it doesn't have anything to say on any subject. Well, speaking of spineless, I think I, I got the overwhelming impression that the original premise would have been she tests positive and then she chooses to get rid of the baby or uh, keep it. Um, but it, it doesn't even do that. It's just whether or not she just doesn't even have to, even have to deal with that decision if yeah. she tests positive. Um I think a lot, a lot of people are mentioning Sliding Doors, but I think that's just because there's just not many films that utilize this kind of parallel narrative. But like in recent years, it used to be Groundhog Day was like the only loop movie. And now in recent years, it's become its own whole subgenre thing. Uh, so to the point where we don't even really call it uh, the Groundhog Day formula anymore. Do you think there's, does this showcase a use of a narrative that could become its own subgenre? Or is it just a little kind of have your cake and eat it? I I hope I hope to God this is not some new genre. It felt to me like I don't know if anyone listening is a big gamer, but like one of those video games that's a kind of branching narrative type thing where you're given choices and they can radically alter the story, but it's all just an illusion. And actually, there's only about two different cutscenes, and one of the men's was a guy doing a slightly different smile at the main character. <laughs> The, the difference in this film is entirely an illusion. There is, there is nof, nothing in this film. Like I said, the, it's a gimmick, and I think this, this can be used not as a gimmick. I haven't seen Sliding Doors myself, but, you know, that's a film that's sustained. It's clearly something that uses that technique well, but I think in this kind of film, it's something to set it out from the rest of whatever Netflix has just dumped on its platform that week. That's, I had the exact same thought, but because I'm so much older, my reference is the choose-your-own-ending books <laughs> that I used to read. It's exactly that. And then when you get to be about five years old, it, the, the, the illusion shatters. You're like, oh, there were only two endings this whole time. I thought there were 17. Um, the, I love the switch to streaming, even though I'm a cinemaphile. I will never not go to the cinema, but it opens up so much entertainment for younger people who cannot take themselves and don't have their own money to take themselves, see lots of different types of films. So we are now seeing so much choice for people under the age of 18, the tweens, who were never really catered to back in the 90s and the early noughties. There was 
one, maybe two films that got proper cinema releases that you actually really wanted to see, and one was Disney. So to have a slew of stuff on multiple platforms that's for you, it's made for you, I think is great, but we need to watch it with the messaging here. Mm. Um, there was a saving grace in the message at the end where they, they kind of gave a tertiary glance to don't worry about the guy, you might not end up with the guy that you think you have to and your life will go on. And I think younger people will latch on to that and that is positive, but that's coming off the back of an hour and a half of very bad lies that will lure them down very bad life <laughs> choice paths. Well, you all have a choice to watch it or not. It's streaming on Netflix and it's a certificate 12. Now we're going into the Wayback Machine to 2007 and the origin of a very naughty little girl. What is he doing here? We found your daughter. She's alive. Be prepared for changes. We have a child therapist that she'll be working with. Four years is a long time. What she needs right now is our family. Esther? Sweetheart. It's mommy. Welcome home, Esther. We left it just as it was. It's lovely to be back. I miss my family very much. Our goal here is helping Esther acclimate back into life within the family unit. This prequel to the 2009 horror Orphan finally reveals where young Esther came from, the psychopathic murderess who sneaks into unsuspecting parents' homes under false pretenses, on this occasion escaping from a facility in Estonia to infiltrate a wealthy American home by posing as their lost daughter. Ash, you were practically giddy to watch this. Um, what were you hoping for and did it meet your expectations? I love, love, love horror films of all kind because I love being scared and I do remember the original Orphan was something completely different and I don't know whether we should take this with a pinch of salt because I did not see the twist in The Sixth Sense coming but I did not see the twist coming <laughs> in this or the original Orphan um, I was very excited to see Julia Stiles um, mm. of Save the Last Dance fame pop up as a lead character and she is playing against type in this but only for the second half um, I appreciate whether it was well executed or not, I really appreciate when filmmakers and writers are making prequels and sequels and they bother to actually come up with a good new idea for the story. And that's what they did here. It is not the same as the original Orphan. The twist is different. And by the time you get to the end and you remember, oh, I'm watching a prequel. Oh, this is how it all started. It's you, You're completely lost in it. But it is a suspension of belief needed for films <laughs> like this. But if you just lean right into it, it's like you, lots of people think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is entertaining. I don't because I find it stupid. If you're willing to suspend your disbelief, then you love that kind of stuff. I'm willing to suspend my belief for entertaining horror films like this. Why well, I... I definitely agree it comes from it it does come from a non-cynical place it's not let's dredge up this property from 13 years ago and just come up with something lazy it does feel like they came up with the story first and were like oh this might fit into the orphan franchise yeah um were you were you scared at all like were you entertained by the narrative i wasn't scared at all um the first orphan was a lot more creepy it's easy to scare me with a film like this because weird little girls in weird outfits mm. are creepy across the board um there's scenes in light flickering um mental health institutions 
easy trope to scare the hell out of us. I don't remember feeling frightened, actually, one tiny little bit. I loved the Julia Stiles character and the son and the takedown of that kind of waspy family who mm. think they're way better than everyone else. And that is terrifying to know that there are plenty of people like that out in the world who will go, the law does not apply to them. They will do whatever it takes just to keep their nice little life going. No one else matters. That was quite scary. And Julia Stiles did that brilliantly. Um, I won't... I won't outright go into the, the twist in the first Orphan film, but uh, Isabel Furman, who plays Esther, um, she, in the first film, she's actually uh, a little girl, uh, and then she's now much older, and she's now much taller. <laughs> and there's some... I noticed some cinematic trickery in there to make <laughs> you think that she's much smaller than she is. Did that, did that completely take you out, or was it part of the charm? Um... It's a little silly. I think if you go into this without seeing the first orphan, for example, or maybe without knowing the twist in this, you won't notice. But there's the, the first time they do the elf trick, which is <laughs> so the, the brilliant Christmas film Elf. It has no CGI. It's mm. all um, perspective shifting. That's um, a sore thumb moment, and then you don't stop seeing it. I think my favorite is um, shots from the waist up when she's running, and it's very clearly <laughs> someone doing a waddle because they're on their they're on their hind legs. <laughs> yeah. um, it's pretty much that, yeah. But to me, that's to me that's part of the fun. Like I want to go into a movie like this, seeing just goofy, weird stuff like that, like yeah. people trying to shoot around the obvious horror, obstacles. The horror genre is a great one to have fun and muck around in. Like yes. I said, just let go. Don't think about it too hard. You're supposed to have these little laughs. You're supposed to have these shock scares. It's fun. Do you, I, I'm kind of surprised that the film's about someone with mental health problems and a physical disability. Why do you think it's kind of escaped any kind of criticism? Is it because it's just not taking itself seriously at all? Because it is a funny little horror film. I think it has escaped that. There is a moment when Julia Stiles delivers some... There's problematic stuff coming out of her mouth, but you expect that because of the character. Mm. You let that go. The filmmakers aren't trying to say, this is how we should talk to and about these people. Julia Stiles is a terrible person in this film, and it's shown by her language towards this young person. Cool. I... Uh, usually with, with like Netflix films, I'll ask if it was good enough for a cinema release. Because <laughs> this is, uh, I think it's streaming in America, but in the, U in the UK it's in cinemas. Um, should this have been maybe just a streamer? or? I don't know what's happened with Julia Stiles' career. She's a big bankable star and she's very good and she hasn't mm. been in the cinema for a long time. So I think she could have pulled people in. It's a funny time of year to release this, so anything coming out in the summer, we kind of know in the back of our heads, the studios think this is rubbish, so why should I bother to go and pay and see this? Stick it out around September time when it starts getting autumn yeah. That would have been great. It's just a mistake to put out horror films any other time of the year, but it's got a lot of competition this Halloween, so maybe that's just why they slung it in early, just to get a little piece. Well, yeah, it's, uh, if, if you want to watch a horror film, here's a brand new one uh, outside of the season. Um, it's uh, Orphan First Kill is a certificate 15 and it's playing at The View and The Light Cinemas. Cambridge 105 Radio. 
Following the success of our last visit, the new music generator returns to the Brewboard Tap Room in Harston. Join me, Tim Willett, from 7 o'clock with live music from Cambridge Band Competition winning artist Ollie Harris and The Lonely Hour, plus music from Leon O'Leary and Dan Bond. The new music generator, three-hour special, live in front of an assembled audience, this Wednesday from 7 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Listen live on Radio Player. Are you suffering from buffering? Find yourself screaming, not streaming? Or do you just lag behind? Then it's time to demand better broadband. City Fibre is building a brand new full fibre network across the UK, giving you access to broadband from a range of providers that's more reliable and up to 20 times faster than average. So you can stream, game and video call without interruption. Get connected to full fibre today. Choose your provider at cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio you're listening to the cambridge film show on cambridge 105 radio and we're halfway through our fortnightly coverage of all films great and small here in the studio now they see they sing songs by the seashore <laughs> nailed it <laughs> Nailed it. I'm here to pick up 15 passes for the Fisherman's Friends. Catering passes are allocated at the Trader's entrance. Oh, no, it's a Fisherman's Friends are a band. I thought you were talking about the cough suites. <laughs> What's it like sharing a record label with Lady Gaga? <laughs> According to her management, she's well chuffed. <laughs> the Fisherman's Friends have a new album ready to roll. Moby Dick and the Whalers are not on message. All they said was, does she like me? They're a pasty. He made the papers. On a scale of one to ten, how bad is it? Eleven. With success comes responsibility. Go on, get out of here. That was some performance you did yesterday. I've done some crazy things in my time too. I don't think I'm cut out for being in the spotlight. The fan club's been inundated with people wanting to be the new fisherman's friend. When father died, the band died with him. James Purefoy returns as Jim, leader of the sea shanty singing group Fisherman's Friends in the sequel to the true life story of Cornish fishermen keeping the old ditties alive along the coast. Fisherman's Friends, one and all, depicts the men as fame catches up with them and they'll need more than their dry wit to keep their record contract. Henry, death, love, commitment to duty all clash in this musical comedy. Uh, Were you hooked? Um, well, I was, I think, more more ready for this film than most. Um, the the first film came out before I started here at um, Cambridge Film Show, and I was living in the southwest at the time. It was kind of the right time for me to see that first film, and I thought, yeah, this is nice. Of all the 2019 feel-good British comedy films, it was my least favourite of the three, but, you know, it did the job. And so I thought, yeah, sure, you know, despite how everyone's been talking about it here on the show, I thought, well, I'm I'm ready for this. And I snapped during this film. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I sat there glumly for most of it, just the feeling the film bounce off of me 
And then I think it was somewhere between the Lassie subplot or maybe James Purefoy getting cream in his beard. I just, I broke and I just started giggling like a maniac for all the wrong reasons. I don't understand this film. I don't know why it exists. I didn't finish the last Fishman's Friends film and think, ah, but what I really need is another 110 minutes with these characters. This was another thing. I thought this was a 90-minute movie. Mm. That 20 minutes made all the difference in that screen. I felt trapped (laughs) for every minute of this film. Are you okay, Andrew? It sounds like you've got more going on. (laughs) Uh, I I did not like the first Fishman's Friends. You can go back and listen to that episode on our podcast. Because it's the worst film ever made. Um, It was... I thought it was... Uh, cheaply made, shot like a TV show. Characterization was really poor. The jokes were that horrendous grating. man in it. Who was that? That's not all of them. <laughs> the Cockney um, guy. Oh, oh yeah, I can't remember. Um, but uh, this one, I thought, looked like a movie. It's beautiful, like anamorphic lands. It's got landscapes and beautiful shots. The lighting was really good. I thought the characterization was pretty strong. I thought, the, for what it was, I thought the dialogue was pretty good as well. Um, it's rote. No one's no one's going to say, even the biggest fans of this film aren't going to say it's not rote, but Henry, is there not something to be said for just an easy film that's just completely by the numbers, but is competent, or did you just not find it competent at all? I didn't find it competent. I didn't even find it by the numbers. There is... You know, when you make a film, you need to have you need to have tension, you need to have plots, you need to have things going on that are going to sustain the audience until the end of the film. Whereas this film felt like it was wildly flailing, attempting to search for some sort of conflict. There is an entire pivotal plot point to this film where this new Fishman's friend character is revealed to actually not only just not be Cornish, but also be a farmer. This is a major moment of tension for the entire film and sets up the entire second half of it in a way that makes you think, really? Really, was this the best they have? Is this how uninteresting these men's lives are? That this was all we had to go on as far as dramatic tension is concerned? And again, this might just be why I snapped, because my brain couldn't quite comprehend how little film there was to hold on to. Uh, see, I, 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 I don't know if real Cornish fishmen would react that way <laughs> if, if they found out that one amongst them was a farmer. Um, but I... I did find it kind of transportative. I did kind of feel like I was on the Cornish coast with these people who I would never hang out with, but uh, we're just like, okay, fine, I'll go along for the ride if it's if it's just about 110 minutes, whatever it is. Uh, is there is there not something to be said for uh, people we don't usually see in films, just like rural, completely out of the way groups of uh, this group of men who are like very old ways, traditional, and they're thrust into this kind of entertainment world? Is it not something to be said for a different angle for people upsetting the status quo in a way that's kind of unexpected? Sure, I think I think there is something to be said for that kind of film. I just don't think that is what this film is. <laughs> there's a brief line quite early in the film where um, there's a character looking at buying a property in this in Port Isaac, um, and they mention that the Fisherman's Friends album actually is maybe responsible for all of these kind of, you know, yuppie, rich boy Londoners coming down and buying their second homes in Cornwall and taking them away from locals. And actually, that's a really interesting angle and weirdly kind of plays into Nope and in how people can, you know, play into the own uh, fetishization and kind of consumption of their own past and their own legacy. Um, this is, of course, one line in the film, and it's never brought up again, and it never plays into anything else as the band Storm Glastonbury and do fantastically well. 
And I just thought, I really wanted this film to be anything other than the thing that I saw it. I, I saw. <laughs> oh, I kind of disagree because I think I think yeah the, you've got the the romantic subplot of the um, the Irish woman who's got a similar history to what James Purefoy goes through in this film. I thought I thought it was kind of a nice because the whole film's a clashing of worlds. You know, you've got people like her coming to Cornwall. You've got the fisherman's friends going to Glastonbury, and it's it's I found it kind of nice as just kind of people trying to get along from very different. Uh, a broad breadth breadth of life, uh, and the, very much the climax of the film is about that as well. I thought it was just kind of nice and like unoffensive in a way that the first one definitely was um it's it was long offensive (laughs) it it wasn't good um but they i thought they remedied it all i don't know if it's the same writers on this one but um it was it was supposed to go into production in 2020 straight off the back of the first one but covid got in the way um do you think it was obvious that it had been long delayed i think they started filming some of it and then they broke production and they come back and do it in drips and drabs i think um, no, actually, to the film's credit, it doesn't look like it's a, a COVID film. It doesn't look like, you know, they've had to kind of just cordon off and shoot in studios or just go to, like, kind of little abandoned outposts. I would say I think it comes through in the fact that this isn't really about a lot of the fishermen's friends. There's a whole point in the film where they're trying to get a new member and they are emphasising how important it is that the band has ten members which is incredibly ironic considering that only about four of the fishermen's friends are actually characters in this film and the others are just bearded extras who show up on stage for about five minutes at a time. That's about where the kind of COVID stuff comes in of going, Mm. oh, we need to protect these old men. We can't have them hanging around all these actors and all these sets for hours on end. We'll just put them on stage for a bit, chuck the masks back on them and then send them back home with a cup of Horlicks. So what you're saying is you want a whole uh, series of movies setting up each of these characters like Avengers. That's exactly what I'm saying, yes. Excellent. Um, Henry, did you at least enjoy... uh, I actually thought the sound design uh, was better in this film than it was in Nope, which is... I don't know what what that says about me. Um, Did you at least find the songs and the orchestrations nice to listen to? I... The thing is, is that sea shanty is one of those things that kind of strike quite a primal chord Mm. and that the way they're sung just kind of hits that little bit in the back of your spine and you get goosebumps kind of no matter what happens. I was one of those people who back at the start of 2021 got very into sea shanties through TikTok. And so, you know, sure, this works. And they even play the Weller Man over the credits of this, which again, sort of kind of helped compound the breakdown I was having a little bit. So... Yeah, I guess if you like sea shanties, Fishman's Friends do it for you. And, you know, there's a little Cambridge Folk Festival shout out at the start of the film. So anyone who saw the Fishman's Friends when they played here, come on down and enjoy the film. (laughs) Well, a resounding yes from both of us here in the studio, I think. (laughs) Fishman's Friends, one and all, is a certificate 12A and is playing at all three Cambridge cinemas. Next, we're moving northwards into Wales for a meal to die for. A rather truncated trailer there as this entry was filmed entirely in the Welsh language. The Feast, or Gwiled, joins a wealthy dinner party where a mysterious young woman, played by Annas Elway, uh, pushes the family's ethics during an important business meal. Um, Henry, uh, did this film leave you squirming in your seat? Um, No, and I wish it had. It kind of fits into this trend that we're getting in the last few years of, like, elevated horror. Um, Often films like The Witch 
or the lighthouse or like uh, hereditary are thrown into here i don't think they're as guilty of it but the idea is that these are films that are somehow above the horror genre because they're smarter or they're about something or they they don't use that much gore and i think that is really insulting to horror as a genre you know just listening to ash talking about orphan earlier made me think wow that's exactly the kind of horror film i wish i had watched this week instead of the feast which is a film that kind of isn't really about anything nothing happens for the first hour and then about 20 minutes before it ends something kind of crazy happens and then the film ends with some statement about the, this being about something but it's very ambiguous and not in a way that nope is where you go oh i wonder what that was and and what did that set up you just go oh you didn't actually explain any of this to me and now i have nothing to think about other than well i guess at least that was only 90 minutes ah see i thought i thought i didn't find it pretentious which i was worried it was going to be i i think it's it's a very on the surface movie and i think they do they effectively spell it out at the end that it's just nebulous malevolent force is awakened through the practices that this family are doing and they get their comeuppance because by default of having all this privilege and wealth they are just kind of uh spoiled people um what you mentioned kind of different types of horror but it's so you've got like films that try to scare you or gory ones or uh, psychological thrillers. What do you think the intention of this was? I think this was meant to be one of those those very creepy slow burn ones. You got the tone a bit from the trailer, which is why even though you know it was in a different language, I think it was good to hear. The trailer has that kind of like plinky plink music and mm. this this slow build, kind of heavy use of violins. And even though that's not actually literally present in the film, that is the kind of thing that it's going for of going oh isn't this strange oh isn't this weird or what do you think's going to happen next and i think the problem is is that it never really delivers on that for me is that a film like that has to be able to go okay and we're doing this and we're doing that and then that's where this comes in it's just if you want to make a horror film that is is tackling wealth and privilege that's something we've had so much of recently you know just a few years ago ready or not came out it's a very different kind of film but that's a very satisfying and enjoyable way of going all right here's this rich family who are doing these terrible things and here's them getting their comeuppance in various ways in terms of comeuppance though like i remember ready or not and like they get their comeuppance i wasn't overly satisfied the way they get their comeuppance it's very cgi and over the top in the way that maybe certain elements of the other the rest of the film wasn't but as, as this was i found the tone was very consistent all the uh, grisly horror bits they're all practical They've, I think the minimalist feel of the film lends itself well to whenever something really disturbing does happen because I, I did feel like I was in the house when you know someone gets a, a horrible infection or someone's choking on something uh, did did the performances at least make you skin, make your skin crawl? No I think that's part of it as well is that they all if, if they'd felt like characters if this felt like it was about people then maybe I would have gotten into it again that's what these films that get labeled elevated horror do well is that you're interested in the characters and so actually even when there isn't really anything horrifying happening you go but i want to know what happens next to these people mm. whereas i didn't feel anything for these characters and it kind of makes a bit more sense by the end why some of them come up come off a little kind of dry especially the lead character um i think that's just a case of the kind of lead actress not being given much to go on than mm. a case of her not you know not being talented but it's just yeah, an issue if I didn't get enough character from the performances and the script wasn't giving them much to do either. So I just felt myself wondering, well, who, who is this about? Did you, did you, um, like, like we mentioned, it's a Welsh language film. Do you think the fact that it was in 
Welsh. Um, other than just being kind of a nice celebration of a tongue you don't hear maybe as much as you should, did that add anything to the to the atmosphere? Do you think? Um, I don't think so. I think this, you know, this could have taken place in like North Yorkshire yeah. and still been a very similar film for me. It's just a way of, it's it's an easy way on the surface. I'm sure actually in practice it's pretty difficult to do, but it's an easy way to distinguish the film and say yeah. this film's in the Welsh language. That's something you don't get a lot. And I think I'm, you know, I am glad that we have films that kind of trying to do this and experiment by just exposing slightly different sides of like British culture. Well, if you're if you're a fan of kind of slow burn horrors, mixed mixed response in the studio, but I would say check it out. Um, it's a certificate eighteen. Ooh. It's certificate eighteen, and it's playing at the Arts Pitch House. Finally, hopefully, it's n- it's not Nosferatu too late to save the San Fernando Valley. It's gonna be a hot one in Los Angeles. So what's on the agenda today? My eyes are closed. Like every day. What are you doing in my room? Hunting vampires. Directed by stuntman J.J. Perry and co-written by John Wick alum Shay Haddon, Day Shift enters yet another underground world of killers which is with its own economy and regulations, this time, however, they're hunting vampires. Jamie Foxx plays down in his luck Bud, who's reluctantly accepted back into the Vampire Hunters Union under, under probation as long as he's watched by the Green Union rep and stickler for the rules, Seth, played by Dave Franco. But their regular shift pattern gets interrupted by a nefarious plot cooked up by ambitious real estate mogul Audrey, who's definitely attempting to do something. Ash, uh... This deviates from the John Wick formula, uh, not just by the vampire twist, um but by not taking itself seriously whatsoever. Um, did this strategy work for the film's favour, do you think? I think it took itself very, very seriously. Oh, really? I thought they... I think the filmmakers and the writers and the actors thought they were being so funny. Oh, it's try-hard. Like, yeah. Do you think it took itself seriously, though? Um, and then, in the way that John Wick, it, it believes in its own world. John Wick's a good film, though. That's true. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> So this one falls down. I think it... Well, yeah, try hard then is what I mean. Nothing really works here. I'm not sure I can even tell you what the storyline is or what that... Because I was scrolling down, like, who was that Audrey lady? Oh, yeah, I kind of remember something about a mean real estate agent and nothing stuck for me, nothing held together. It, It was just punctuated by really weird appearances from Snoot Dogg and then Dave Franco sneering and doing some slapstick comedy. Um, it didn't work, whether it tried hard or not. Henry, there's uh, a lot of uh, sequel baiting. It's a, it's a very um, uh, confident uh, Netflix release. There's references to a 700-year-old vampire guy who's let rumored to come back. There's People mention this oncoming war between humans and vampires. That's then never mentioned again. You've got two dude bro vampire hunters that show up for one scene that you don't see them again. Are you on the edge of your seat to find out where the day shift saga takes it takes itself next? No, obviously not. It's terrible. No. But I will say that by the standards that Netflix have set for themselves, it's not bad. I've reviewed some really terrible Netflix films on this show, even just today. And this one? Not that bad. 
it it kind of satisfied the like the thirteen year old bit in my brain that just goes ah it's quite fun when when it's gory and when it's it's silly and when Dave Franco gets a gun thrown at him and he fumbles it for a couple of minutes. There's a little bit of my brain that that works for. There's a large bit of my brain that it doesn't work for, but I still think that you know. There's there's more aggressively bad films. If you are the person who's out here and going, man, I wish more films felt like Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters, or more films felt like Bright, then like great news for you. Day Shift is here, and enjoy your twelfth birthday. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a horror action comedy. Uh, I thought the comedy was rancid. <laughs> I thought it wasn't even trying to be scary, apart from maybe the first ten seconds. Oh, was it trying to be scary? I, uh, maybe. Oh, that, yeah. that opening scene, I think, was going for it. But no. I will say, I had whenever the film started, I was hopeful that it was going to be better than it was because I thought the action was well shot. It was creative. It was a, a healthy mix of CGI and practical. Uh, it wasn't chop, 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 chop editing that we we see a lot of nowadays. They held on shots for a while and the stunt people were able to show off their chops. Was there any redeeming quality for the film from either of you? That's true. Now you say that, and like Henry said, enjoy your 12th birthday. That's kind of why I liked Grey Man, which we did a couple shows ago, and no one else did, because I could appreciate the choreography, all of the stunt work, and you just lean into it and, and go for it where it's trying to meet you. So it's... It's no John Wick, which does actually try hard. Yeah. Um, this is the first thing Tyler Tice has ever written. They have no other credits. That kind of shows. <laughs> I'm really liking this stuntman turned director thing we're seeing. It really did work for John Wick. And I think people from the other side of the film industry have a very keen and different kind of eye than most directors who get their work paid for and made. So... Have a little bit more fun with this and maybe don't be expecting anything great. Really? And I, I kind of... I didn't think that the the actual gunfights were particularly good, but some of the kind of more physical stuff where it basically feels like wrestling, I enjoyed that. There's this one car chase, which is surprisingly decent. There's like a bit where you can like see the cameras being pushed out of the hood of a car and it's like, all right, you're doing this practically. It kind of just about works. Like I say, it's still kind of bottom of the barrel. But as far as bottom of the barrel goes, it's the top of the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> There's a fair few bits as well, just the trailers playing silently in front of me that's a lot scarier than Orphan, which is, uh, <laughs> it's uh, on the paper proper horror film, Orphan, and I wasn't scared at all. Um, there's a lot of kind of horrible little moments um, in this. But yeah, it's just that the Snoop Dogg pulled me out of it, man. I couldn't, I couldn't get back in. He's back in the vampire genre after like twenty years when Bones came out. I think. Uh, do we think? The, do we think the pre- the premise is salvageable? This idea of an underground world of vampire hunters and they go out in day shifts and night, the very ill-defined day shifts and night shifts. Uh, do we think this was there was something here that if they did make a sequel, they could sink their teeth into, for lack of a better phrase? No, absolutely not. Like, this is not John Wick. The thing that made, like, that first John Wick so good was you went, oh, there is this kind of whole underground world, and then as it went and did more sequels, you went, yeah, no, this has me on its bones. You've actually really well thought this out. Mm. Whereas this just felt like a film where they went, wouldn't it be cool if there's these people and they're paid to hunt vampires? And that's pretty cool. And that was as far as it ever got. Yeah, it's kind of um, Jay and Silent Bob bro comedy, but it's lacking 
the kind of handmade charm of all those 90s films, which were a little bit ropey. You, they weren't big, slick Hollywood blockbuster things. They're meant to be underground VHS hits. Um, and yeah, this is trying to be that but it's had a lot of money thrown at it. I think if I saw how much this cost, I might cry. I just went to look for it, and they're not showing it on TV, <laughs> which means that it costs a lot, and it ain't going to make anything. <laughs> well, there is talk about a, uh, a franchise plans, but I guess we'll see how it does over the next week or so. Um, but I think it's a resounding no from us in the studio, unless you're just a diehard kind of action. I'm, I'm turning around to it now. Now you're oh, saying no. slightly nice things about it. Just stick with it for the final line delivered by Snoop Dogg. But it's a, it's a an 18 rated film that is made for 14 year olds so Netflix is the place where it belongs that's true yeah um, uh, exactly it's specifically 18 and it's playing on Netflix with a heavy heart that is all the time we have for today uh, please do join us on Saturday the 3rd of September where we'll be getting a double dose of Idris Elba joining him on an epic journey with Tilda Swinton in 3000 Years of Longing and he fights a big cat in the beast <laughs> for now it's goodbye from our reviewers Goodbye. Bye. And goodbye from me. Here to play us out is Diane Warwick as heard in everyone's film of the week. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>